Season 3, Chapter 2, Shadows. Be brave. Things will find their shape. Aaron Bow. Shadows. The sheriff was headed north, and he had a headache. Giving up coffee was a bad idea. It had only been 24 hours since he'd decided to go without, and he'd been miserable the entire time. There, to compound the problem, was the late-day sun. It had pushed its way out through the dense forest and was now spilling onto the road in thin, strobing slices. He flipped the sun visor over to his left and put on his sunglasses. Just moving his head was painful. Despite all of this, he was making good time. Miss Mabel had fielded three calls from Bertrand Thomas over the last few weeks, but it was this morning's call that had prompted her to finally talk to Nathan. Bert's mattern a wet hornet. I really think you should go up there, for he takes a law in his own hands. I've known Bertie my whole life. I've never seen him this fired up. Nathan had agreed to head up and check things out, maybe even install a few trail cameras. Tell him I'll be up by the end of the day, and I'll have a look-see. I'll give him a call afterwards. Ten miles north, then seven miles east at the fork. He'd do a bit of detective work, and then call it a day. The road would take him past Faye's place. He'd been wanting to swing by ever since he learned that her neighbors had pitched in to create a memorial for her. He wasn't sure how Faye would feel about all the fuss. He imagined her most likely reaction. That's just foolishness, a waste of money. These late summer days were Faye's favorite. She had told Nathan so many times over the years that he felt sure he'd forget his own name before he could forget how much his old friend loved September. Then, he recalled this time last year, in the two days of terror that Faye had endured. It had been a brutal attack, yet it never changed her. She had insisted that he take her right back home from the hospital after her recovery. I want to be home, Nathan, and that's that. Faye had died just before Easter. Now here it was, her favorite season, and she was missing it. And everyone was missing her. A freak accident with the gas stove was the story that was going around. A faulty propane tank. The sheriff was an expert at not talking. Yep, could be, he'd agreed. Nathan's denial was also selfish, avoiding the truth is how he got through the day. The sheriff's SUV turned off the gravel road and dropped down to the east shore of the little lake, directly in front of what would have been Faye's front porch. It was gone, of course. Everything was, and he could see clear down to the water's edge. Still, he couldn't bring himself to drive any further. He parked in his usual spot. He left his cruiser and walked around the property down toward her dock. There it was, a simple black wrought iron bench. A collection of daylilies had been planted in a semicircle behind it. And that was it. No plaque, no fanfare. It was exactly the way Faye would have wanted it. He felt relieved. He walked over to the bench and sat down. Then, making sure no one was around to see him, he spoke to his friend. Not the same without you, Miss Faye. His eyes darted back and forth across the lake, looking for any disturbance in the water. 
The sun sparkled in a rippled spray of diamond dust that penetrated his eyeballs and jabbed at his brain. Sheriff Randall squinted as he spoke. We got him. It's, uh, he's, um, under control. Old Clyde was dead. The squad was down to three. The doc, Ed, and himself. And Ed was nearly seventy. How long until it was down to two? And then one? No, nothing was under control. But denial felt better, like a cooling salve. And Nathan was rubbing it all over everything. You probably know that your little friend is doing fine, he said, changing the subject. That's the luckiest dog on the planet. Living with Mabel now and eating very well, I hear. A loon wailed from across the lake. Nathan slapped his hands down onto his thighs. Well, I guess that's my cue. He stood up. The small talk was awkward and hard to maintain. It was time to move his body away from the voices in his head. It's your fault she's dead. She called out to you, but you failed her, and now she's dead. I sure do miss your banana bread, Miss Fay, is all he could say. The lilies looked away in embarrassment. They had expected more from him. Grass was growing where her old cabin once stood. Her pickup truck was gone. There was no trace of her ever having been there. This is your fault. You failed her. The scene wrapped its hands around Nathan's heart and squeezed. He outmaneuvered the feelings by walking briskly back toward his vehicle, still choosing to go around what would have been her cabin. Soon he was driving again, and within the hour the sheriff had reached the head of Bert Thomas's private access road. There was no way to miss the no trespassing signs. They were everywhere, along with long ribbons of orange tape that hung uselessly on each side of the gate. The tape had been cut and flapped in the breeze like streamers from some long-lost birthday party. The gate was gone. He radioed dispatch. I'm here at Thomas's Road. Gonna be about half an hour or so. Ten-four, boss. Sounds good. Donnie was on dispatch. How's the headache? Terrible. Nathan answered. The forest was noticeably thicker here, and the road was dark. Nathan opened the hatch of his Ford Explorer and took out several large yellow access-by-permission-only signs. These he tucked under his arm while he reached for his tool bag. It took a few minutes to find the gate. It had been kicked down and ridden over so many times that he had to set his gear aside and use both hands to yank it up from the mud. Once it was freed, he repositioned it between the two corresponding posts. He reattached the hinges in place using longer screws from his tool bag, and then latched the gate closed. Next, he nailed the bright yellow signs onto the fence posts, and then two more on the adjacent trees. Just try and tell me you never saw these, he muttered, already imagining the lame excuses these criminals would hurl at him. He'd heard them all thousands of times. They would stomp their feet and indignantly assert that they were tax-paying citizens. They would say they were nearsighted, or that their cousin said it was fine to ride here, and that if old man Thomas didn't want ATVs on his property, why was there a fack and ATV trail right in the middle of it? None of these would stop Sheriff Randall from issuing a summons, but first he had to catch them. 
Nathan took out two small trail cameras from his bag. They were brand new, and he was excited to put the wireless technology to the test. Camera one would point directly at Bert's fence from across the road. This would capture the trespassers coming off the property. Camera two he placed within the gate on Bert's property, facing directly across from camera one. Welcome to my camera sandwich, he said out loud while standing back to assess his work. I'll have you in my crosshair soon enough. Nathan was feeling confident. Bert Thomas hadn't always restricted access to his property. His 80 acres had been open and accessible for as long as anyone could remember. But after years of picking up broken glass, piles of used toilet paper, cigarette butts, and empty beer cans, Bert had finally snapped. First, he started with no littering signs. When those were ignored, he moved to no trespassing signs, forbidding even the local hunters from using his land. Despite these efforts, the trespassers still came. They lit fires and shot up bottles. They cut down trees and they dumped trash. This morning, Bert had threatened revenge, and Nathan couldn't blame him. Nathan knew about revenge. The sheriff took advantage of the shadows and used the red laser light from each camera to ensure their perfect alignment. He was adjusting camera one when a young moose trotted by. This tall and lanky youngster had stopped his late afternoon amble just long enough to give the open hatch of the sheriff's cruiser a brief inspection. He was all ears and legs, a yearling. Nathan watched as camera one and camera two blinked red. You just starred in your first movie, little buddy, he said softly, not wanting to frighten the animal. You go on now and grow into a big old bull. That'll be something for the sequel. He opened the corresponding app on his cell phone and waited for the feed to come through. He was remote, but the new cell tower by the ski center was proving its worth, and, soon enough, he was watching his first camera victim pad across the road. It would only be a matter of time before the bad guys showed up. He imagined the case would be solved before the close of the coming weekend. With the afternoon ending, the sheriff tossed his tools into the back of the explorer and closed the hatch. He expected his own vehicle to trip the cameras, and, sure enough, they blinked red as he backed up and slowly drove away. He would call Bert Thomas once he got back to the station, once he had some coffee. With the sheriff gone, the silence was free to return, and it filled the forest like foam insulation. No ATVs, no moose, just a deep quiet. The cameras looked at each other. I got nothing. You? Camera one was already bored. No, nothing. Camera two blinked back. A soft breeze kicked up pulling more of the autumn leaves down onto the road. Those are just leaves. Camera one was a know-it-all. I know. Camera two was patient. Dr. Karen had been with patients all day. She had skipped lunch, deciding instead to inhale a protein shake. She still had cases of them at home and was using them to fuel her workaholic tendencies. If Ed found out, he'd be upset. He had given more than one lecture on the importance of three square meals a day. But Ed wasn't in the office. 
His seat was now filled with a very confused middle-aged woman. She had answered the ad in the local paper, confident that her typing and bookkeeping skills would be of value to the psychiatrist. She had been the only one to answer the job posting for the temp position. Now, she was struggling with Ed's online scheduling tool. I told you I don't work with Excel spreadsheets, she announced, when Amelia tried to show her the calendar scheduling system. This isn't an Excel spreadsheet, Miss June. It's just an online calendar, and it connects with my email. Oh, she said back, simultaneously impressed and confused. Look, Miss June, just do your best. As long as I know where I'm supposed to be, I don't care how you do it. Dr. Karen was too busy with patience to train the woman. Ed's going to kill me when he sees what a mess things have become, she thought. Ed D'Angelo was taking a leave of absence. Just give me a few months to get my head screwed on straight. Then I'll be back. Of course, of course, take as long as you need. And if you decide not to come back, well, that's okay too. Amelia tried to imagine a world without her right hand. Ed needed the time away. Anyone could see that. His stoic veneer was wearing thin, and he looked awful. You've lost a lot of weight, Ed. I'm worried about you. I've got a sister in Baltimore. Maybe I'll go there for a few months. Dr. Karen was relieved. Yes, that's a great idea. Getting away will do you good. But Ed never intended to go away. Instead, he spent the summer planning, organizing, and building. He would leave his lake house only when he needed supplies, choosing to drive to Augusta to shop so that he wouldn't be seen. He had stopped mowing his lawn, stopped chasing the Canadian geese from his property, stopped worrying about the Adirondack chairs and their peeling paint. He stopped caring for himself. His wife Marilyn's designer flower beds had been handed over to the rabbits and the weeds for safekeeping. Flowers were meaningless, and their fleeting beauty only accentuated the impermanence of life. These constant reminders of her distracted him, made him sad and weak. The cavernous rooms of his giant chalet were now filled with shipping boxes, gun safes, and oversized rolling suitcases. To make room, wardrobes, bookcases, and buffets made of cherry, mahogany, and walnut had been covered with sheets and then pushed up against the windows. Extension cords, security cameras, and tools were everywhere. He remembered Clyde White's kitchen countertop. Now it was his turn. Ed hated Clyde White for what he had done and for what he had not done. Coward, victim, mastermind. Clyde was each of these and none of these, depending on what part of the movie Ed was playing in his head. Over and over again, Ed would relive the first time he met Abram, his conversations with Clyde, Samantha's body in the morgue. Endless reels of anger, pain, and loss looped in his mind, and he couldn't make it stop. Working helped a little, and so did drinking. At the root of all of this was fear, a deep-rooted fear that bled into all the what-ifs and could-haves of Ed's life. Fear was in the corners of the house and the shadows in the yard. Fear poisoned his food and disturbed his sleep. 
Fear followed Ed everywhere, like a bony hand, touching and tickling. Between looking over his shoulder and following up on every possible sound that entered the house, Ed self-medicated his way through the liquor cabinet. And still he could feel it, this sense of impending doom. Something was coming for him. Shadows, written and performed by Bridget Emmons. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Main Stories and visit my website at BridgetEmmons.com. Thanks for listening.